Okay, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider truth, consider what your word says about a number of topics, to be able to better be prepared to give an offense for anyone to ask us what the hope is that is in us. So Lord, we do pray that you'd equip us today, give us sharp minds, clear thinking, enable myself and uh, Ken to speak things simply and clearly. We ask the Lord that all of us be better prepared because we've been here today. Pray your blessing on all the classes on the campus, your protection and blessing on all the children on the campus. And Lord, we also ask that you would uh, so work in and through this church that we fulfill our highest potential in you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, look at that uh, light blue handout. And it says Orthodox Christianity. We'll start there. Orthodox Christianity claims that Jesus of Nazareth was God in human flesh. This doctrine is absolutely essential to true Christianity. Now, if it is true that Christianity is unique and authoritative, if not, then Christianity does not differ in kind from other religions. The deity and authority of Jesus Christ lies at the heart of Christian apologetics. The basic logic of this apologetic for Christianity is this. Now I want you to see the flow here. We're going to go over this flow. I want you to really have it in your mind. It starts, number one, that God exists. And we're going to go through some arguments on that too, particularly cosmological and teleological. But that God exists. Now actually what we want to do at this point is we need to show that there is a theistic God that exists. Not just God, whatever you want him to be, exists. He has to be a theistic God. What we mean by that is a God who is independent of his creation. Okay? He is infinite and eternal. His creation is finite and temporal. And he is independent of his creation. And he is active in his creation. Because you have other kinds of isms, like deism. Deism is a guy just created everything, kind of got it going. Like, a, like you start a clock, and he sets natural laws, and he doesn't interfere, he doesn't enter into his creation. And that kind of God would not send his son, and would not, his son would not go to the cross and rise again, he would not do miracles. Why? Because he doesn't interfere with his creation. That's deism. Or pantheism is God and his creation are one. And so there's no distinction between God and his creation. We need to make sure that we have a theistic God to make sense out of the gospel. If you're talking to somebody like a Hindu who is pantheistic, they're polytheistic, but they're also pantheistic, and and you you talk to a Hindu and say, Jesus is the Son of God, they don't have a problem with that. They have 300 million gods. They just make him one of them. Okay? There has to be a unique theistic God for us to be able to, for Christianity to make any sense. You talk, so if you're going to talk to somebody who has a different worldview, in other words, they see God differently than a theistic God, first thing we got to do is make sure they have the same worldview as us. That's where we start. You don't start, you can't just preach the gospel to somebody who has, doesn't have a theistic worldview. You have to start there in different cultures. Our missionaries have learned this. 
a lot of times the hard way. When I was in the Palau Islands, we spent uh, six weeks, six weeks of meetings before we shared the gospel with the Palauans because they had a different worldview. It took us six weeks to get them to have the right worldview of theism to make any sense out of the gospel. You can't just go there. In fact, I was a campus crusade for Christ and said, just share the four laws with them, four spiritual laws. Four spiritual laws make no sense to them because they don't even have the worldview to even understand it, okay? So, number one, God exists. We need to make sure that there's a theistic God. And we'll talk about how to, how to show that, how to uh, prove that, and reasonably prove that. Number two, miracles are possible since God exists. If we have a theistic God, then miracles are possible, right? And so if you have a God who created everything, that some God can obviously do miracles. He created it all, right? Okay. All right, number three, we're going to say that miracles will be used to confirm Christ to be God. God come in the flesh. Miracles are important if, to, to prove that. You know, some of you guys may know that Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Most of our founding fathers were Christians. All of them weren't. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Thomas Jefferson actually uh, had a, it took all the miracles out of the New Testament. Because why? Because they had to be made up because, it, because God doesn't interfere in his creation. And so, you know, so we need to make sure we have a God that does intervene into his creation. That's a theistic God. So miracles are going to be used to confirm Christ to be God. Number four, the New Testament is historically reliable, a historically reliable record of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the next step in this progression is not the Bible is the Word of God. The next step in this progression of thought is let's just prove the Bible is historically reliable. That's all we want to do this step. But the Bible is a historically reliable document. That's the next step. Okay, from there we'll go to number five. In this historical, historically reliable document, the Bible, Jesus taught that he was God come in the flesh, God incarnate. And we're going to show all the places that he taught that. Some people say, well, Jesus' followers said that of him, but he never said it of himself. Well, yes, he did many times. And we'll see that. Okay, then number six, Jesus proved himself to be God incarnate by three things. A, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. B, by living a sinless and miraculous life. And then C, by accomplishing his resurrection from the dead. So in this historical reliable document, we're going to show that Jesus did all these three things. That he fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy that was obviously written hundreds of years before he was on the scene. He fulfilled it exactly. He lived a sinless life as it's recorded in this historical reliable document. And he rose from the dead with witnesses up to 500 at one time. Okay. Therefore, number seven, all that being true, that proves that Jesus of Nazareth is God come in the flesh. Step number eight is whatever Christ, who is God, teaches is true. God cannot lie, so whatever he says is true. And number nine, we're going to see that Christ taught the Old Testament is the written word of God and any promise that his disciples would write the New Testament. So then, Jesus, who proves that he's God, Come in the flesh. 
stand between the testaments of this book. It says of the Old Testament, that's the authoritative, unbreakable, inspired word of God. And then he promises the Holy Spirit to come and lead the disciples into all truth and bring and give them total, total remembrance of everything he told them and disclose even more revelation to them. So he promises the New Testament. Okay, number 10. Therefore, it is true on the confirmed divine authority of Jesus Christ that the Bible is the written word of God. From there, number 11, the Bible, which is the word of God, which is true, teaches that Christianity is the only true religion. We use religion in a positive sense there. Only true religion. Therefore, Christianity is the only true religion. So that's what, that's what Christian apologetics is going. It's going to the point of starting off with basic laws of logic and, and, and reasonably proving that God exists, that theistic God exists, and then going from there all the way to reasonable proof that Christianity is only true religion. So y'all see where we're going this course? Yeah. Any questions about this flow? Because this is what we're going to basically follow. Now we're going to have to be, we're going to, you know, be able to concentrate more in certain parts than others. That's why we gave you a lot of paper. So we might not be able to cover every one of the, every one of the things I, you got in front of you, but we're going to do our best to do that. Now let me, I want to introduce Ken in just a moment, and he's going to come up after I share a little bit more. But Ken Bateson, would you stand up? Ken's going to help teach this class. Show him a little love here. Thank you, Ken. Okay, the next hand I want you to look at is a hand that starts off, I don't know what color these are. Mine are all white. Apologetics, and it's got C.S. Lewis quote on the top. What color is that? Kind of a, what is it, beige or khaki? Khaki. It's like khaki shorts. Green. Apologetics. We're going to start with this. Okay, Christianity is a statement. Let's look at C.S. Lewis quote from God in the Dock. Christianity is a statement in which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance, which is what it is to most professing Christians in America, right? Moderately important, which doesn't make any sense. So, if it's true, it's infinitely important. We want to give our lives to it. If it's not true, let's just all eat, drink, and be merry. Alright, let's go to the party. It's only another logical response. But it is true, we're going to see that. Okay, number one. Uh, what is apologetics? Apologetics is the reasoned defense of the Christian religion. Christianity is a faith, to be sure, but there are reasons for this faith. Faith is not to be confused with reason, but neither is it to be separated from it. When people say, you know, it's just faith, and then they violate logic. In other words, someone will say something totally illogical. They say, I believe it. It's totally logical. I know, but it's just like it's faith. It's not supposed to be reasonable. That's not true. It is supposed to be reasonable. It will take faith still. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It will take faith. But it is a reasonable faith. All right, let's look at the... Uh, the difference between uh, apologetics and evangelism. 
give you a little idea. Apologetics, number one, is belief that. Evangelism is belief in. Apologetics is about reason. Evangelism requires faith. Apologetics involves the mind. Evangelism involves the will. I'll tell you something. There was a good friend of mine was my professor in apologetics named Norman Geisler. Was debating an, a, an atheist at Boston University. So they had a big debate. Boston University. And after the debate, he and the atheist went out for coffee. And during coffee, the atheist said, Do you want to know the real reason why I don't believe in the existence of God? And Dr. Geiser said, well, Yeah, I would. He said, The real reason why I don't believe in the existence of God. This is after the whole debate, right? The real reason is it's more uncomfortable for me. See, he doesn't want to submit his will. So his mind will do all it can to try to, you know, put up the smoke screens so his will doesn't have to bow to Christ, bow to, bow to God. Okay? okay, so three. Apologetics has to do with the mind. Evangelism has to do with the will. Apologetics has to do with comprehension. Evangelism has to do with commitment. Apologetics has to do with perceiving. Evangelism has to do with receiving. Apologetics is, you can lead a horse to water. Evangelism, you can't make them drink. Okay? Y'all see the difference there? In apologetics, we're leading the horse to water. But we can't, the apologetics is not going to make them drink. He will have to choose to drink. Okay? There's still a willful choice here. No matter how much you, you're right, it will not be, as philosophers say, it will not be logically inescapable for them to have to believe. They're going to have to still choose because it does involve the heart and the will. Okay, apologetics, look. Evangelism, before you leave. Apologetics, to defend the faith. Evangelism, proclaim the gospel. And by the way, people do not come to faith through apologetics. They come to faith through the gospel. Apologetics can help not get on all of the obstacles, perhaps, that they might have to understanding the gospel or receiving the gospel. So, so apologetics has a place, but really preaching the gospel is what really gets people saved, okay? That's the power is in the gospel. We do want to be able to answer questions. I told a guy one time, I mean, I, I spent hours and hours talking to college students and college professors, and I got to a place where I just say, in the middle of the conversation, say, if, if I could show you this is true, would, do you want to believe it? I mean, before we even start down this road, would you like to believe it? Would you like it to be true? And if the guy says, no, I don't want it to be true, I said, I'm probably not going to get there. If you decide ahead of time you don't want this to be true, I'm probably not going to reach a place. But for a guy that says, you know what, I, mean, I, I want this to be true, i got a couple of real problems, i got some things I'm stumbling over, then that's great. Let's talk, let's talk about it. I'll spend hours with that person. Okay, so apologetics to defend the faith, evangelism proclaim the gospel. Apologetics, First Peter three fifteen. In fact, let's just look at that passage. If you have your Bibles, if not, I'll, I'll read it. But let's look at First Peter three fifteen because this is a great verse for what we want to be able to do in this course. First Peter three fifteen. 
says this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who, hope, who asks you to give up account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. That's how you do apologetics. Gentleness and reverence. But, you know, be ready to make a defense. For anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope. And by the way, I think as in the days to come, as we have more and more shakings on the earth, more and more, you know, people dealing with natural disasters and all kinds of things with God's giving people's attention, we're going to have more and more people asking, how is it that you have peace to us? How is it that this isn't shaking you up? What is it? And you're able to explain because of your relationship with Christ. And then everybody has some questions. Well, what about this? What about that? That's when you want to be ready to make sure you have answers to those questions. Okay. The relationship between faith and reason. We, we, we start off with a partial understanding. And all, all we're going to get really for apologetics is a partial understanding. But then there is when we come to a place of belief. And after we truly believe the truth of Christ, we'll have a greater understanding. There will be an eye-opening. There will be a spiritual awakening, so to speak. There will be blinders falling off. You will see things. You'll have greater understanding. St. Augustine, who is in the 400s A.D., said, Faith is understanding's step. Understanding is faith's reward. you got to chew on that one for a little while. In other words, there is what we call, there is understanding one, which is partial. I understand enough to believe. But after I believe understanding two, I understand a lot more that I have believed. Something has happened to me spiritually, and I can understand what a spiritual man, as we see in First Corinthians, you know, can understand all things. All things that will be revealed, please. Okay. So, apologetics is preliminary to faith. I'd call it pre-evangelism. Apologetics I don't, is not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel. Apologetics is pre-evangelism. You're trying to knock down obstacles in people's understanding. It's instrumental to faith. And it plays the role of being confirmatory of faith. In other words, for Christians, even after they believe, they find out, I'm understanding a whole lot more about how reasonable my faith is. I didn't know it was this reasonable. I learned a lot after believing about how solid it is what I believe. Okay? Now, those who refuse, refuse apologetics are agnostics and skeptics. Let's look at those two for just a moment. There's two kinds of agnosticism. Okay? And we'll define what this means here. First, we're going to call soft agnosticism. Soft agnosticism claims that we do not know if God exists. Hard agnosticism says you cannot know. Let's start with soft agnosticism. Soft agnosticism claims that we do not know if God exists. Soft agnosticism does not eliminate the possibility of knowing whether God exists. It says, in effect, I do not know whether God exists, but it is not impossible to know. I simply do not have enough evidence to make a rational decision on the question. This, of course, leaves the door open that one may know God and that some, indeed, may truly know God. This form of agnosticism is no threat to Christian theism. So if someone's a soft agnostic, that's fine. 
They don't know. There's a, an astronomer by the name of Carl Jastro. In fact, he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. It's an interesting little book. It's a real small little book if you enjoy it. I like astronomy, so I've read it and read some of the other stuff. Anyway, he, at the end of his book, he says he fears that he's going to find out that at the very end, it's going to be a, it's going to be, as I pull myself to the precipice of knowledge, and I finally pull myself to the top of the top cliff of knowledge, I'm going to find a band of theologians who's been sitting there since the beginning. <laughs> but he basically says this, he says the biggest question, there's no doubt there's a big bang, and I believe there was a big bang, and I'll tell you why. The Bible says God spoke, and the galaxies were flung into space. And they can show that the galaxies are still going further and further apart. I think I think I think it's still a result of God just speaking and pow, there's creation. And Carl Jasper says we know that it had to be that point. He says, Well we don't know is what existed one second before that point. And he says this, for that we would need revelation. <laughs> exactly. And God's given us that revelation. Okay, now let's look at uh, Hardy Gnosticism. Hardy Gnosticism claims that God is unknowable. That is, God cannot be known. The Hardy Gnostic claims that we cannot know, cannot know God or reality. It is impossible to know whether God exists. And one of the major proponents that me, most of you probably heard, Immanuel Kant, is the, is the most popular major proponent of this. Evaluation of Hardy Gnosticism. Complete Hard agnosticism is self-defeating. Explain what I mean by that. It reduces to the self-destructive claim that one knows enough about reality in order to affirm that nothing can be known about reality. That's a self-defeating statement. Let that sink in for a moment. Alright, everyone look up here for a moment. For someone to say, you cannot know God. He's saying he's making a statement about reality. You, there's something about reality you cannot know. Well, I want to say to him, do you know that for sure? See, they just made a statement that you can know something about reality. Their statement is you can't know anything about reality, but that is a statement about reality, isn't it? So it's a, it's in philosophy, you call that a self-defeating statement. And a self-defeating statement... Uh, Proves that, that the argument has no, no value. <clears throat> okay, stay there in that paragraph. This statement contains within itself all that is necessary to falsify itself. For if one knows something about reality, then he surely cannot affirm in the same breath that all reality is unknowable. And if one knows nothing whatsoever about reality, then he has no basis whatsoever for making a statement about reality. You all follow that? Mm -hmm. Total agnosticism is self-defeating because it assumes some knowledge about reality in order to deny any knowledge about reality. So really, agnosticism is no threat. It's really no threat to Christian theism. Someone says, I'm agnostic. I'm not, I'll, I'll run after that statement a little bit. I'll say, really, what do you mean by that? And I want to know what they really mean by that. Are they just blowing me off, you know? Get, get, I don't want to talk to you? What, what do you mean by that? You don't know, you can't know. Well, I, I don't think you can know. 
Well, then that's hard analysis, and we can, that's a self-defeating statement. We can walk them through that. I don't know. What do you want to know? Because it's been revealed. There's been revelation given us. And you can know. Okay. Now let's talk about skepticism for a moment. The skeptic neither affirms or denies God's existence. In contrast to the agnostic, the skeptic does not say it's impossible to know. The skeptic claims to take a much more tentative attitude toward knowledge. He is not sure that God is or is not, nor is he sure whether man can or cannot know God. The complete skeptic believes that one should suspend judgment on all philosophical questions. Hence, the complete skeptic is not sure of anything. Several reasons support this view. A. There are numerous perspectives on a given subject, that's what they'll say. Or deception of sense perception, that you can be deceived in your sensory perception. Or this, this, just, this just means that all the arguments are really the same. Or D, we cannot know cause connections and the fragmentary nature of all finite knowledge. I'm giving you probably more than you need to know here. But basically, here's the evaluation. David Hume, British skeptic, and uh, basically here's his evaluation. Skepticism does not suspend judgment in all things. Here's why this can't be true. Here's why skepticism is also self-defeating. Skepticism does not suspend judgment in all things. A skeptic is certain that skepticism is true. As such as, such as a self-defeating argument. Now, do you all see that? See, this is where these arguments just, you want to show them just the inconsistencies of it, of their argument. Most of the time they're smoke screens, but you just want to show them their smoke screen isn't working. So the skeptic is certain that skepticism is true, that's self-defeating. All right, why doubts? Why should you doubt anything if there's no reason to doubt? That's what we'd say to the skeptic. But if there's overwhelming evidence or good evidence, why would you doubt? And absolute doubt is impossible for it's self-defeating. We already said that. And here's a, here's a good one here. No one lives total, in total skepticism. No one really lives that way. You know, I mean, whether one's food is safe to eat or walking on a freeway. I mean, people really do live that there are some things you can know for sure. They live that way. And so skepticism really doesn't work either. Okay. I have to take someone from hard agnosticism to soft agnosticism in three easy steps. I think you guys like this. Step number one, to the atheist who says, I know that God does not exist, ask, actually, I'll go back and forth, how to take someone from hard atheism, I'm sorry, I said agnosticism, hard atheism to soft agnosticism in three steps. Step one, to the atheist who says, I know that God does not exist, ask, are you omniscient or all-knowing? Do you know everything? Well, of course not. And how can you be sure? that God does not exist. Couldn't his existence be beyond your limited knowledge to which you must, which you admit? I suppose so. Okay, no, he may ask you, do you know everything? And your answer, of course not. His response may be, and how do you know God exists? For you, too, must be an all-knowing to know for certain that God exists. Your answer would be, that's a logical mistake because I do not need to be omniscient to know that God exists. I simply need to be able to know partially. In other words, I do not need infinite knowledge to know if the infinite God exists. Whereas I do need infinite knowledge to know if the infinite God does not exist. Or else his existence may be beyond the scope of very finite knowledge. 
In any case, hopefully his dialogue will move him from atheism to hard agnosticism, which claims God cannot be known, or God is unknowable. Okay, step two. To the hard agnostic, who claims that God is unknowable, you should explain to him that such a statement is self-defeating. For to say that God is unknowable is a knowledge claim about God. If it is a knowledge claim about God, then God must not be completely unknowable. If the door is open to know at least one thing about God, he's unknowable. Then it's possible that other things about God are knowable too, right? Hence, the hard agnostic would have to admit it's not that God is unknowable, but rather that he himself does not know God. Which is what is called saltiness Gnosticism. Now we've found this to be a saltiness. Step three. Now with regard to soft agnosticism, former atheist and hard agnostic, who says, I do not know God, you must recognize that such a claim is no threat to the Christian faith and gospel. To such a person, you position, you, you, I think it should be positive intellectually. Step one, since the atheist must be, but is not omniscient, and that God is knowable, I didn't say that very good, I'm sorry. Such a person, step one. Okay, since the atheist must be, but is not omniscient, and that God is knowable, step two. Since hard agnostics claim that God is unknowable, is self-defeating, then let me tell you about the God that does exist, and I know personally in whom you can too through Jesus Christ. Okay, you might need to read over those and chew on those a little bit. Understanding self-defeating arguments the first time you hear them. That it's a little bit fuzzy, or something. You, know, you get you get glimpses of it. The light goes on. You go, I get it. Now I lost it. <laughs> I had it, but I lost it. <laughs> okay. So go ahead and read over these, and it'll sink in, and you'll go, Yeah, this makes sense. And have enough, you know, read over enough to where we can have a conversation with somebody about it, because a lot of people when they sound agnostic, that should end the discussion. They want you to stop. As opposed to saying, you know, well, let's, let's go on a little further. What do you mean by that? And let's see where it goes. I have a question. Huh? You said um, the person comes back and says, well, you know everything. And then you give that point, I don't have to know everything. You know, why not? If you've got you know, a person who really wants to argue with you, why don't you need to know everything to know for sure? I don't have to have infinite knowledge about everything to know can exist. I just have to know enough to know he exists. It's a finite amount of knowledge. I just have to know enough information to know that God exists. I don't have to know everything about everything. But I do have to know everything about everything to say he does exist. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, we're going to go into some arguments for the existence of God, and I want let Ken come up here and start this session. So come on up here, Ken, and put some room for you. A lot of people out here I don't know. Um, as you said, my name is Ken Bankston, and uh, Gary asked me to help him today, and the mistake he made in asking me to help him will probably not be fully recognized until about 3 o'clock today. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed what Gary had to say. Uh, in fact, I want to piggyback on just two little items there that I hadn't really intended on doing. Uh, 
the reason we do apologetics is not to bring people to Christ directly because it's never going to happen. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something that happens when the Spirit converts you. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to con- you're not going to be able to argue someone into, into the kingdom. But there's a big difference between Islam and Christianity. There's a big difference between Hinduism and Christianity. And that difference is truth. The truth that you know will set you free. And the truth that you know will determine, by a large extent, who you are. You know, Gary mentioned that there's a lot of Christians who, uh, or at least proclaimed Christians, who only have a moderate desire for Christianity and the things of Christianity. It's because, in my opinion, many of them, if they are Christians, are just not convicted of that truth. There is a truth that they think might exist, but they're not convicted of it, so they don't talk about it. If you know that something, if you know you love your kids, you will act like you love your kids. If you know that God exists, deep down, you will act like God exists. And if you know how to engage in conversations about God, you'll engage in those conversations. And that's one of the reasons that I love apologetics, is because it allows me at McDonald's while I'm standing in line behind two people uh, with my money in hand to get a Big Mac to get into a conversation about Jesus. It's really difficult to get to know someone long-term and develop a long-term relationship and have them see something in your life that they want and go, tell me why it is that you are like you are. That's a great way to be. And, and I would say that's probably the most effective form of evangelism. But there's not a whole lot of people in your life you're going to have that opportunity with. But you're going to go to McDonald's tomorrow or the next day, and, and you're going to be at the grocery store. And apologetic arguments are unbelievably great segues into those conversations. It takes no time to engage someone logically. And once you engage them logically in an area that they're not completely familiar with, that kind of stumps them, that makes them go, wow, you know what? I never really thought of that before. Once you do that, it's really easy. I mean, really easy to say, have you ever considered Christianity? Let me tell you about Christianity. Let me tell you about what Christ has done in my life. If, if you just approach them with, let me tell you about what Christ has done in my life, they're going to say, well, you know, let me tell you about what mechanical engineering has done in my life. You know, everybody has a story. There has to be some foundation on which you can base that story. One foundation is they get to know you and they recognize the power of a changed life. Another way to do it is you hit them with a piece of information that they've never considered before. I just call it you put a stone in their shoe. You give them something to think about, something that they weren't really prepared for. And so we're going to look at truth here. I, I must admit, I, you and I will be kind of going over this material at the same time for the first time. I wrote it over the past two weeks, and I haven't had a chance to really go over it, which is sort of unfortunate for both of us. Um, but we're going we're gonna to get through it. Um, there was something else I wanted to say before we got started, and hopefully I'll remember it before we're done. Um, Oh, I, I wanted to say this. Um, over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about some things 
that are not your usual topic of conversation. These are not things that you probably have discussed with your family over the dinner table. I mean, I try and everybody falls asleep. So this is, these are probably not common topics, okay? So some of it is going to be completely foreign to you, some of you, and some of it is going to be, you know, some of the terms may be a little bit familiar, but you're not exactly sure how they apply. We have to get through this, um, and, and we'll probably have time for questions and answers at the end. But if you get stumped, if you, if you get, I, I have no idea what you just said. Just raise your hand, because this is some difficult material, and, and uh, it's, 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 there should be no embarrassment at all. When I first looked at this material, I didn't know what it meant either. I had to look at it several times before I started getting, you know, the hang of, of these guys talk weird, you know, and so when you start trying to figure out what they're saying, it, it becomes difficult, especially if it's your first time to look at it. And uh, to that end, we're going to look at the cosmological argument, which is, uh, it's going to be all of mine, all of the stuff that I'm speaking, uh, even though there may be two cosmological arguments or one that says existence of God, all of mine are going to be white. Um, Gary has the pretty colors, and I, I was not quite as efficacious in my preparation. Um, the cosmological argument is one of those words. It's, it's all it is. It's it's the logic of the cosmos, basically. It, 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 the argument is, um, since there is a cosmos, since there is a universe, since there is a creation, there must be God. That's the main premise we're going to try to prove here. Okay, and. Classically, the cosmological argument has been a philosophical argument. And it goes like this. If there is anything, you, me, or even the illusion of you and me, then there must be a God. The normal question to ask back would be why? Why, why is that a, a logical statement? It's because we have to explain how that thing, whatever that thing is, got here. The pen she just dropped. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Right? And you really only have three choices. Uh, either it's been created by something else, it has always existed, or it created itself. Now, one of those is logically false. Which one of those is? It just makes no sense. Created itself. Right. Because if it created itself, it has to be before it is, right? It has to exist before it exists. It's, it's crazy, right? So we're left with really just two options. And the answers are starting to become pretty clear. The only two options left are that it had to either always exist or it had to be created by something else. Now, if we look at the created by something else option, you have to go, well, okay, what created the thing that created that? And then what created the thing that created that? And you get yourself in an infinite regress. Eventually, you have to get back to the first thing. And so the point is, in order for anything to exist, something, something had to always exist. Now, throughout philosophy, there have been arguments about what that something is, and we're going to cover that. And that goes to what Gary was talking about. Um, the something is not the universe. It's a theistic God. It's not a pantheistic God. It's not the universe itself. It's outside the universe. It created the universe. So it existed before the universe. The universe, as we will see, is not eternal. That also used to be a philosophical argument, but it sort of fell apart uh, in the 19th century, and especially uh, 
especially since Einstein. Um, the simple cosmological argument, and this is one just take to the bank, it's, it's really easy to remember. It goes like this. Um, everything was either created by something or it was created by nothing. Which one makes more sense? Right? Uh, it's Julie Andrews who sings the songs, Nothing Comes From Nothing. Right? Is that right? It's in The Sound of Music? Something like that. My wife could sing it, but she went to the restroom at the deli. Um, it's really easy to remember. It's like if somebody says, well, there is no God, well, how do you explain the universe? Uh, well, it was a Big Bang, really. So what caused the Big Bang? Well, we don't know. Something caused the Big Bang? If it banged, did something bang it? Right? I don't care who you're talking to. Eventually, you get to the point where they go, well, I guess it kind of does make sense. Something had to start it all. So now we're just trying to figure out what that something is. Right? Um, cosmological argument in antiquity. Uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers, Thales, Parmenides, Heraclitus, etc., they all posited an essential or necessary substance that had in itself the power of being and the power of self-motion. Plato and Aristotle both considered the eternal to be much more than a substance. However, to say that Plato and Aristotle posited a who, posited a who would be an overstatement. They, they had in mind something more like the force of Star Wars, right? It was an it. Um, let's see. Plato called it the ultimate good, and Aristotle called it the unmoved mover. Um, but the reason I bring this, this up is, I mean, these guys are existing 500 years before Christ, and Thales uh, about 600 years before Christ. Um, what they all knew was nothing comes from nothing. And we have something. Where did it come from? They also knew that nothing moves itself. Right? Nothing has the ability of self-automation. Something has to get it started. With that, they searched for answers. And that's where we got the original cosmological argument. It was developed and advanced uh, much more in the Middle Ages by Thomas Aquinas. Um, but it's not as if uh, Paul didn't talk about it either. In Acts 17, 27 through 28, he says... He's in, he's in the, uh, he's at Mars Hill in Athens and he's talking to a bunch of philosophers. And he says, He is not far, talking about God, He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. So the, the, we are contingent beings, meaning that our existence comes out of an essential being. Our ability to move, our ability to exist, our ability to live and breathe comes from the one who is eternal and has the ability to live and breathe and move on his own. That's what Paul was saying. That's what the philosophers of antiquity understood. Uh, the principle of inertia is sort of a leap here, but uh, it's stated in Newton's first law of motion. And it says basically an object at rest tends to stay at rest. And an object in motion tends to stay in motion in the same direction and at the same speed unless acted upon by another object. So in other words, if you roll a ball in a vacuum with no friction, it's just going to keep on rolling the same speed, the same direction. Well, question. If the universe is eternal 
and it had been eternally at rest in a point of singularity, which is what the cosmologists would say. If it was eternally at rest in this point of singularity, then would it not still be at rest? And would it not forever stay at rest? So the question is, who moved? Right? And that leads us right to God. Now recently the debate over origins has shifted away from the traditional philosophical arguments that we've been talking about thus far. Um, and though the philosophical tradition continues and is a great way to get into conversations, as I've mentioned, um, what has really taken center stage right now is uh, physical science and cosmology. It's because it has matured so much uh, in the past 50, 60 years. We know things now that even, you know, that 100 years ago we couldn't dream of. You know, when Darwin was looking at the cell, he had no clue what was in the cell. Nobody did. They were looking through this pathetic little light microscope and it just looked like a round blob. They had no idea the complexity that's in the cell. The same can be said uh, for the universe. Uh, the Well, we're going there. Uh, in the 16th and 18th centuries, um, you had, respectively, Copernicus and Isaac Newton. Uh, from the 16th century, we get the Copernican Revolution, which was a revolutionary understanding of astronomy. Now, he dealt basically with the, the difference of heliocentricity and uh, uh, geocentricity, meaning is the Earth the center of the solar system or is or the universe even, or is the sun the center of the solar system? Um, that opened up some, some pretty significant doors. Then in the 18th century, Newtonian physics... Uh, brought with it an understanding of universal laws, such as gravity and entropy or decay. And these laws, for the first time we realized, did not only apply to the Earth, but they applied to the entire universe. And that was a, a, a startling revelation for a lot of people. Um, it also, since the idea of decay or entropy, something breaking down, uh, now we understood since it applied to the universe as a whole we started to get an idea that maybe the universe is not eternal because it's breaking down and it's been breaking down for all eternity past it's reasonable to assume it would have broken down by now things don't break down eternally right uh, I want to quote here from uh, Newton because there's there's a really sort of a, a thing that happened during that time period, which is called the Copernican Principle, which is where people really started saying, okay, we don't need, it's, it's what Gary was talking about, deism was really prominent at the time of the founding of this country, because people had looked at the universe and said, well, my gosh, Copernicus has got this figured out, Newton's got this figured out, the universe is like a big clock, it's all wound up and it's just running on its own, and if it's running on its own, then we really don't need God. Right? We needed him to get everything started, but now we don't really need him. Newton's going to talk about that. Newton was a devout believer, but he's going to mention that statement right here. And I think it's an important statement to touch on. He's talking about the heavenly bodies, the, the planets. Though these bodies may indeed continue in their orbits by the mere laws of gravity, yet they could by no means have first derived the regular position of orbits themselves from those laws. Thus... 
the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only come from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This is one of the greatest scientists the world has ever seen, right? And he was a devout believer, as were almost all of the great scientists that have, you know, brought us the knowledge that we have now, that we stand on the backs of now. 20th century Albert Einstein, we're going to talk about him and Edward Hubble. Albert Einstein is famous for what theory? Relativity. Theory of relativity equals MC squared. See it on bumper stickers. We, we don't have any idea what it means. You have to have like, you know, a degree in engineering to be able to figure it completely out. But I do know a bit about it. And we're going to talk about that. Einstein posited that if you have a massive body such as a planet, then the gravity from that body would curve space. The space that surrounds that body. So it's like if you took a, a giant bowling ball and you stuck it on a trampoline, the trampoline would sort of envelop that bowling ball. Well, he's saying the same thing is happening with space around these giant bodies. If the space around the mass of the universe, which is also made up of a bunch of bodies, is curving, then the universe should be contracting. In fact, it should fall back in on itself. It should have no spatial volume. Since it does, he had to posit another theory, something that we call the cosmological constant. It's the force that was acting on those bodies, pushing them apart, separating them. Now, this sounds very intellectual, and you're probably going, okay, who cares? What does this have to do with anything? The thing is, if the universe is expanding and you reverse the cosmic, the cosmic clock back, then it's contracting. If you reverse that clock back far enough, you get to that point of singularity. You get to that point where the universe began. The law of cause and effect is um, unavoidable. We can't have logical conversation without the law of cause and effect being in play because you have to know what in play means. And my saying it gives a meaning that you can understand. That's cause and effect. Cause and effect is everything. Everything that we do, everything that we say is affected by cause and effect. If the universe began, what caused its beginning? Einstein and a lot of other scientists were not really happy with this idea of a non-eternal universe because exactly as Gary pointed out, it's an uncomfortable moral issue to think that something caused the universe because there are metaphysical, theological ramifications to that. I now have to be concerned about who I sleep with and uh, whether I lie because if there is a God that created the universe, it's natural to think he might have some requirements of me, right? People don't really like that idea. In fact, I would say that none of us in this room like that idea either. We all want to be, in some sense, our own God. And we come to an understanding that we can't be, and that there is a God, and he's not us, and that changes us. But until you get to that point, it's really difficult to make that leap. Um... So think about the implications of that statement. If you were looking for something that could cause energy 
and space and time. You need something that exists outside of energy and space and time. And if there's something outside of the realm that that we live in, this, this realm, this natural order, then inescapably, the Creator is timeless, spaceless, and supernatural. Imagine what they were thinking when they came to this conclusion that the universe is not eternal. If the universe is not eternal, it takes about 15 minutes for, for a guy with really bad hair and an extremely smart mind to figure out if it's not eternal then something supernatural created it if something supernatural created it I'm in a whole lot of trouble right this is an argument that you can use with every single person you run into if there is a big bang something banged it and if that's something that banged it is outside of time and space and energy that we have in our natural realm, then that something is supernatural. And then we just have to ask, who do you think that supernatural being is? Right? Edwin Hubble, working at approximately the same time as Albert Einstein uh, in the 1920s. Uh, he was working in Mountain Wilson Observatory in California. Uh, and using the most powerful telescope of his day, discovered what was thought to be nearby clouds of gas and dust. He discovered that they were actually galaxies. And suddenly, the Milky Way became very small. Because up until that point, we kind of thought we were it. And there was a bunch of stars around us. But now all of a sudden, not only are there a bunch of stars around us, there's a bunch of galaxies with a bunch of stars around us. That was one very big thing he figured out. But something else in the process he noticed is called the red light shift. And the red light shift is observable uh, as outworkings of the Doppler effect. Um, you guys have seen, you know, the weather shows you the Doppler radar. It's the same principle. Uh, frequencies are bounced off of storms and they come back and, and we're able to see them in colors. Um, if you, you hear a siren go by on the street, it starts out low and gets a higher pitch, he goes, woo, 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 as it goes by, right? And then it gets low again as it goes past you again. The same thing is happening in the spectrum of light. And so, let me just read this because I'll mess it up otherwise. Uh, the Doppler effect speaks to how the frequency of a wave changes relative to its distance from the observer. And then I talk about the siren. A similar phenomenon takes place with light. This is called the red light shift. As a wavelength of light stretches out away from us, we witness a color shift in that light. Right? So you've all seen probably a prism where you have a piece of glass and you shoot a light through it and you see like a rainbow on the other side of it, right? That's, that's the light spectrum we're talking about. The farther away it gets, the more toward red it gets. And what he noticed was that these galaxies he saw far off were getting redder and redder and redder and redder and what he understood that to mean was that the universe is expanding so what he did is he confirmed Einstein's theory of relativity this was kind of important too because Einstein so disliked the conclusions of an, a, a non-eternal universe that he fudged the math purposefully and he, he came back later and said this was the greatest mistake of my career 
But he divided by zero, which I mean, most kindergartners know you can't do, and you would think that Albert Einstein would know that you couldn't do that as well. He, he divided by zero so he could make everything work out to where he still had an eternal universe. When the red light shift was proven, it confirmed his original theory, and he had to go before the world and say, I made a big mistake. And now we know, we can say with absolute conclusiveness that the universe is expanding. And what's this mean? It means there was a big thing. It means there was a beginning to the universe. The radiation afterglow uh, has to do with cosmic background radiation. This is actually the light and heat from the Big Bang explosion. And this light's no longer visible as light uh, because the extent to which the wavelength has been stretched over however long the Earth has been around, however long the universe has been around, excuse me. Um, but the heat can still be detected, the heat from the light. Um, in 1948, George, George Gamow, a Russian physicist, predicted that if the Big Bang model was true, then initially the universe would have been compressed into a single hot dense point. And this point, once having exploded, would produce radiation as it expanded. Now this radiation would fill the universe, it'd be ubiquitous by now, and he said that uh, he could calculate the temperature equivalent of the afterglow. Now this guy, obviously a lot smarter than me, I wouldn't have even known to look for something like that, but he not only did he, did he figure out that it should exist, but he was able to put together some calculations. I don't even know how this works, but he was able to figure out that the heat from the, uh, the radiation afterglow would be 2.7 degrees below zero, or uh, below, above absolute zero, I'm sorry. And this would result somehow in a low level hum. Now, this is getting really abstract, but the, the point is, he found a way to confirm yet again the uh, the Big Bang, and there was they were getting a lot of pushback for the Big Bang. There were a lot of people coming up with other theories. Hole came up with a theory that there was a constantly expanding universe, but it was all just one universe. And then when they had the radiation afterglow, it was proven by a guy named well, two guys, Penzias and Wilson. They found this two. It was actually 2.7 degrees, just as it was predicted. They found this hum, and it proved that this radiation actually existed, which proved conclusively that there was a Big Bang. The temperature ripples did the same thing, and I will t I'm not going to go into the whole thing about the temperature ripples, but I do want to let you know that the project leader, they were, they were looking at this background radiation, and they said if this background radiation happened, then we should see this in the background radiation if it's really from the Big Bang. The result was the project leader, George Smoot, announced the Kobe satellite's findings, which is what was sent out to find these temperature ripples. He said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. University of Chicago astrophysicist Michael Turner said, the significance of this discovery cannot be overstated. They have found the holy grail of cosmology. Cambridge astronomer, the great Stephen Hawking, called the findings the most important discovery of the century, if not of all time. Now, you gotta understand, at least the last guy, I don't know the first two guys, but Hawkins is not a Christian. And most of these guys realize the implications of these statements. And it terrifies them a bit. Gary? I was going to say, Greg, 